Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out what noises a black hole makes and how a Canadian scientist helped figure it out and bring it to life. We continue our look into back to school 2022 with what the new year holds for COVID protection measures. All provinces and territories have dropped mask mandates, even for students, and that has some concern given low vaccination rates among younger kids. We find out why there's been such a sudden fuss around the notion of quiet quitting, doing what needs to be done at work, but nothing more. We look into why Canada continues to be unwilling or unable to deliver the kind of natural resource support many of our allies are looking for these days, especially in Europe, as countries there try to rid their dependence on Russian energy. But first, why is the NATO Secretary General making a first ever trip to the Arctic, joining Prime Minister Trudeau to highlight the importance of security in the far north? We find out why Canada still has a lot of work to do there. Well, first up tonight, let's head north, way north. And that's where the Prime Minister toured NATO's Secretary General today. They visited a military radar site in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut, marking the first time any NATO chief has visited Canada's Arctic. They also watched Operation Nanook in Canada's Northwest Passage, the first time Trudeau has attended. Uh, The Prime Minister, the operation has been held every year since 2007. It involves military aircraft and warships and hundreds of armed force members training in an Arctic environment. Now, senior Canadian and NATO officials say the visit is meant to highlight that the region is a security priority in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, of course, issues related to climate change that are changing accessibility to the far north. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland says the visit uh, is to highlight Canada's commitment to the area. In our budget in April, we meaningfully increased our spending on defence and Canada is very committed to defending our Arctic and to working closely with our NATO allies. Christia Freeland in Edmonton today, meaningfully increased our spending, committed to defending the Arctic. Those are big words. Joining me now with more on this is Rob Hubert. He's an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary and a senior research fellow with the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies, who specializes in Arctic security. Thank you for your time tonight. Welcome back. Oh, it's always my pleasure, Ben. Very committed very committed, meaningful increases in spending in defending the Arctic. Uh, those are some big words. Tell me what. Tell me about the timing. Why is Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, making his first ever journey that far north in our fair country? Well, I mean, there are two main reasons why they're doing it. Uh, I mean, Stoltenberg is trying to demonstrate NATO solidarity overall. So we're seeing, you know, to put it in the proper context, we are seeing him going to various NATO countries and it's to demonstrate to the Russians that we are, in fact, of one mind. And so uh, the northern dimension is, of course, of critical importance. And so that is a very important element. The photo op to the Russians, hey, we're in this all together. I think also, though, there is a little bit of a concern on the part of NATO, just in terms of what Canada is doing. And so having this sort of corresponding with the fact that this is the biggest military exercise that Canada does in the north uh, gives them a reason for being there. But it also gives them an opportunity when, um, when media is not present in a more private setting to remind Canada that, in fact, that all of the other northern NATO alliance members and including what is expected of Sweden and Finland, have definitely improved and extended both their capabilities and their focus on meeting the Russian threat. So in this case, not just a visit to uh, bolster Canada's uh, commitment, but also a look-see for NATO. Uh, Why does Canada need reminding of this? It seems like something we should be uh, fully aware of. Boy, you would think so. 
I mean, once again, I mean, I listen to I listen to the various members of cabinet speaking in terms of what we've done, and they won't even be open about whether or not the funds, for example, in June, the four point nine billion. Um, does that represent new funds, or is that just part of the eight point one billion that was promised in the budget? Um, they've been asked that directly by some of your colleagues in the media and have not been able to answer that. And you would think that if uh, we had those strong words that uh, that uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeman offered, that if we were so committed, they could say, no, this is all brand new money. And instead, they seem to be focusing on the 20 million that they have, or 20 billion that they have promised over uh, 20 or 40 billion over 20 years. But of course, I mean, that's, that, that's nonsense. Nobody can, knows what the next government is going to do, and you simply, that isn't how defense works within Canada. So there's a lot of sleight of hand. There's a lot of uncertainty. And if she's so committed, if she's so certain, why hasn't she gotten back to the, 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 the individuals uh, that have been, in fact, questioning them and saying, is this new monies or is this just simply that $8 billion over the six years? And she, well, they, they don't seem to have an answer for that, which you know what the answer is then. Well, of course, because everyone who does this for a living knows from both sides of this fence, whether you're a reporter or in government, the first question that's asked when anything is announced is, is this new money? And yeah. normally they have an answer unless it isn't. Yep, no, exactly. And if you go back to that June meeting, this is the part that's so troubling. And I mean, if... if if the average Canadian can watch, and I mean, there were your colleagues, there was uh, Mercedes Stevenson from Global, Murray Brewster from CBC, and they pressed the minister on that, said, look, is this new money? And you could see that at first she says, yes, absolutely, it's new money. And then she backtracked, and even General Ayers wasn't able to answer that question. And I've seen no clarifications at this point, which tells me that is probably not new money. That is just simply coming out of the $8 billion, which means, okay, so uh, what aren't we doing that we promised we would do back when the budget was released? So you think this was likely more pressure being piled on uh, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and simply wanting to look like uh, we were wanting to make a nice flashy announcement using money they had already announced? Oh, absolutely. Hey, you, you won't even take it one step further. I mean, okay, this just shows you how nerdy I am, but um, I went and checked the, um, uh, the, uh, the serial number that they had on the F-18 that she was using as a backstop. You remember she made the, the yes. speech at the at, uh, Bowdoin, uh, and there was an F-18. That F-18 is one of the leftovers that Australia sold us. Remember, we wanted to show that we were doing something and not buy the F-35 that was back in, you know, when Trudeau had said, no, we'll never buy the F-35. And instead, we went out and spent, I don't know how many billions on buying basically what, you know, our Australian leftovers as they move for F-35s. And it's one of the Australians, it's not even one of ours. So it gives you an idea, just, you know, sort of like, okay, that's, 1980 vintage, and, and that's your backstop? Uh, speaking of vintage, um, certainly our northern defenses are vintage, to say the very least. Uh, how are we doing on upgrading those? And certainly I imagine the NATO Secretary General is going to want to know uh, what's happening with our, with our northern uh, security shield, so to speak. No, absolutely. And once again, you know, the promises and the rhetoric are, are well thought out. There's no question that somebody in D&D &D is, of course, going through what we truly need. And we saw this 
very clearly stated this is what was going to happen when the Liberals released Strong Security Engage, which is their defense policy. But here we are in 2022, and we have to go through what was promised. One of the first things was a replacement for the uh, CF-18s. And, of course, where are we now? Yeah, we're negotiating with Lougheed Martin. Uh, negotiating. And of course, that actual notice that we're negotiating contained the important clause that if we don't like what we're negotiating, then we're going to reopen the program. <laughs> it's just sort of like, how many times are we going to do this? So nothing on, on, on the fighter replacement. And like I said, you know, as well as I do, you know, we bought those in 82. Would you drive a car? That's from 82. We've done nothing in terms of new monies, presumably, for NORAD modernization. Now, once again, she did announce in the June meeting, the defense minister did announce that we are going to be upgrading uh, the North Warning System and specifically named two over-the-horizon systems that we would be bringing along to replace the existing northern uh, uh, northern uh, uh, search system, but also one that then goes to the northernmost in terms of the, the archipelago. So they have said that. They have said that we're going to be investing in a missile system, presumably for our new aircraft, but the development of that is going to take a long time, particularly since it's geared against the hypersonic threat, which is incredibly dangerous but incredibly difficult to shoot down. So those were specifically noted, but once again, the reality is even if the $4.9 billion, and you have to take away the $2 billion that they say is for amortization, whatever that means to them. Um, so, But even if we take them at the word that it's a full $4.9 new funds over six years, uh, $1 billion a year, anyone to come close to meeting just those three things. And, of course, he also said that they were going to do a whole bunch of stuff in terms of infrastructure, in terms of new capabilities, et cetera, et cetera, none of which seems to have been documented. None of it seems to be real money at this point in time. Rob Hubert is our guest. He is an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary, a senior research fellow with the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. We're talking about the NATO Secretary General. He's in Canada for a few days, and uh, his first major stop is up north, way up north uh, in Nunavut. They're doing, uh, he's with the Prime Minister. Uh, they're checking out our security systems or apparatus up north, as well as a, a view of uh, Operation Inuk, which is a, an annual military exercise which takes place in the Arctic and has for the past 15 years. We've been talking about Canada's um, sort of cryptic amount of investment in making sure that our uh, Arctic is safe uh, and secure. Um, Rob, we've talked about this before, and we don't want to sort of overstate the threat of Russia, uh, but it is a threat. Uh, you know, it's not a threat of, of, you know, it's not Red Dawn, it's not soldiers coming across, but, you know, there is a threat there. Are we, are we awake enough to it? No. And I mean, I got to push back on two, two, two things you did say. We don't want to overstate the threat. The threat is involving nuclear weapons and their use. I don't know how you soft pedal that, to be perfectly honest. And I'll explain right. that in a moment. The other thing, just before we broke for commercial, you said, of course, the six-month anniversary of the Russian invasion. And, I, and I've, I've got to take you a little for task for that, because that is the... That is the government's position, that the war starts in February. But remember, the war, actually, the anniversary is an eight-year, six-month anniversary. Yes, I, I was there started. when it started. I was in Ukraine when it started. So, yes. Yeah, I remember we, us I talking call it the, about it. It's so shame when you forget that, the, the full-scale invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. Yes, a indeed. A seizure of, of the scale of Crimea in, in Donetsk, that's, that's pretty full-scale to me. It is indeed. It is indeed. Um, nonetheless, it did it was a re- another awake, you know, another wake-up call for the West, I think one that maybe wasn't paid enough attention to in 2014. No. Uh, this current, this further invasion, let's call it a further invasion, has certainly, uh, you know, woken people up to to the real threat that, that Russia poses. 
Well, I mean, what it has awakened to, and this is why I don't think we can soft pedal it. I mean, I so strongly disagree when I hear General Ayer saying, well, there is no real threat because they'll never invade. As you so correctly pointed out, it's not a land threat. It's the aerospace and maritime threat. And what the problem is, is that since taking power, Putin has uh, more or less followed a development program or, or authorized that has given an increasing capability and focus not only on having conventional forces, and there's all sorts of criticisms, of course, that are occurring right now as we watch them in the second phase of the Ukrainian war, but they've given a huge focus on their nuclear weapon capability. And if you start combining that with some of the statements that Putin has had, some of the policies the Russian overall security orientation has, and then you start saying, okay, what do you need a hypersonic for? What do you need a Poseidon torpedo system or an Avogard hypersonic? I mean, these are all the new delivery systems that are being introduced. And it's not just to, to fight conventionally. It's not to deter in traditional terms of, uh, of deterrence. It's to give you the ability to have that first strike with nuclear capabilities and to strike an enemy so you can't respond. And you put that two and two together and you start saying, OK, well, Putin, since seizing power uh, back in 99, has used mili military power about every eight years. He has a war. It was against the Chetnians first, then it was the Georgians, then it was the Ukrainians in, in 2014. So you got an aggressor state trying to figure out how to build up systems of nuclear war fighting capability. And you have them threatening against the interests of the West. Well, it doesn't take you know, any type of a soothsayer to really see the danger here that, in fact, we have a leader here who is thinking about how do I use nuclear weapons to achieve my overall objectives. And Russia is certainly not alone. You know, China has its eyes on the Arctic, too, even though it's not an Arctic nation, te technically. Uh, so there's lots of interest in what's happening in our north. Uh, we seem to be the only ones. I mean, it's not that we're not paying attention to it, just not paying enough attention to it. Well, we would much prefer that everybody else sort of takes care of it. I mean, we didn't even get to talk about the uh, the undersea fact that we just basically, there's a rising submarine threat that the Russians have. And basically, we are relying on the Americans to take care of all of it. And, and, and let's, let's just pretend that it's not going to happen. Um, you know, uh, in terms of the aerospace danger that I'm talking about, the Russians have about 18 retroactive or new bases that they have militarized since about 2007 when they start doing it. You compare that to the fact that we have one refueling site that we have not been able to, um, to, to get up and running at uh, Nana Civic. And, and you start saying, okay, are we taking anything here? serious on on our northern capabilities sorry my my, uh, my dog Milo, your dog completely agrees with your assessment of this i believe <laughs> yeah so i and we look at how much the danes the norwegians the finns the swedes have all been working together improving their surveillance cap capability every one of them with the exception of the swedes is buying uh, the or having the f-35 so there's a unity and they've all been working with the Americans really closely. The Norwegians allow uh, American nuclear-powered subs not only to come to Bodo, which, of course, is something that they didn't before. They're also giving uh, uh, retrofitting their capabilities to actually service them to a limited degree. This would be unheard of before. But it illustrates that our allies are very serious about it and, quite frankly, 
our focus is on constabulary. It's on search and rescue. It's on 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 re- responding to the communities, all of which is important, but it doesn't meet the threat of this aggressor state that is thinking about how you use nuclear weapons to achieve their objectives. And those objectives are against us. I'm sure Jens Stoltenberg will have uh, something to say on that after he's had a look. Uh, Rob Hubert, as always, thank you so much for your time. Um, It's always my pleasure, Ben. Sorry about the dog. Okay, let's listen to the black hole one more time. So here's how it's described. NASA released a haunting, it certainly is haunting clip of sound waves rippling out of a supermassive black hole located some 250 million light years away. It's at the center of the Perseus cluster of galaxies and the acoustic waves coming from it have been transposed up to 57 and 58 octaves. So they're audible to our hearing. In a post on Monday, a NASA's Twitter account for its exoplanet program shared an audio clip of that sound of waves of pressure coming from a black hole. Now, someone very correctly pointed out, there is no sound in space. It's a vacuum. How could it be a black hole? I'm going to ask that question. Don't you worry. Because there is a Canadian scientist behind those sounds and how they were created. And he joins me now to explain the whole thing. Matt Russo is a physics professor at the University of Toronto and a sonification specialist. Thank you so much for your time tonight. No problem. Glad to be here. So this this has been uh, quite the phenomenon, has it not? I mean, Going back, I mean, I guess growing up, we've always heard there was no sound in space, but I guess that isn't entirely correct. How so? That's right. That's what's so fascinating about this story is that we all think we know that there's no sound in space because most of it is a vacuum and sound needs a medium to travel in. But there is this very special case where we've been able to detect the presence of sound waves in a far off galaxy cluster. And so we can actually take an image with x-rays and see the imprints of the sound waves in the image. And that's the starting point that will eventually let us, that eventually let us hear a representation of the sound. So I, I gather these sounds are way out of our range, uh, but what? how did you go about figuring out what the sound was or is? So when you look at the X-ray image, we, uh, we know that they are, they're pressure waves. They're enormous pressure waves. They're, they're several tens of thousands of light years across. They would take 10 million years just for one of these waves to pass you. But they were identified as actual pressure waves uh, in a paper several years ago. And that's all the sound is. It's just that those pressure waves are happening at frequencies that are way, way, way too low for our ears to hear. And so our job was to find the shape of those waves and then translate them into the human hearing range. So it's similar to how Animals, uh, animals like elephants can make infrasounds. They can make sounds we can't hear, but we can shift those sounds into the range we can hear to make them audible. Just how how much beyond our range are these sounds? I gather they're into, you know they're infinitely smaller. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, they're about fifty seven octaves below middle C in music terminology. So what that means is, if you go to the lowest note on a piano. And then you imagine eight more lengths of piano longer. That's how low the note would be. That's incredible. So what exactly are we hearing in these videos that were posted? You're hearing a representation of actual low frequency sound waves. So these are waves that are propagating through gas in a distant galaxy cluster. So there is gas there. There's enough gas for sound to travel in. 
we can see their imprints, which means we can figure out uh, the shape of the waves. And that's what I did with my, with my collaborator, Andrew Santaguida, as part of this project for, for the Chandra X-ray team. We found the shape of the waves, and then we translated them to hear a, a representation of the tone of these enormous waves that have been blasting out due to this black hole for billions of years. It sounds like a fascinating project for someone who's a uh, an expert in sonifications. So, how did what is the process once you had these waves? Uh, how do you put sound to them, or is the sound there? You just have to. Are you inter an interpreter or a translator? I guess is what I was getting at. Yeah, it's it's a bit of it's a bit of both in this case, which is why um, it's a little hard to explain, and it's this is easily misinterpreted. But what we did is the hard part is actually finding the shape of these waves in the image, propagating in all directions. But then you just have a digital waveform, and it's it's just the same thing that creates normal sounds. We, you can make a digital waveform that represents a sound wave and then play it through a speaker. This was a waveform that represented a sound wave we can't hear. So we just had to kind of compress the waves or speed them up on, until that, that signal could be interpreted with our ears. So what are we hearing when I guess I realize, I mean, when you when you're listening, it, there is differences in pitch and so on, it goes up and down, and there is sort of a musicality to it, uh, that corresponds to what we're looking at. But tell me a bit about the highs and lows of what we're hearing when we see the image of the black hole that you've posted, but also we hear the black hole. Right. So the black hole, it has these giant jets, and these kind of blow bubbles in the gas around it. And so those bubbles can sometimes form ripples, and that's what generates the sound waves. And they're really strong in some directions, but not others. And so what we did with the sonification is we found the, the representation of those waves pointing in every single direction around the black hole. So we're kind, of, uh, we're kind of scanning around the image like a radar to sample the tone of the wave at each point. And in some regions, there's mainly just noise. But in other regions, the wave is, is much clearer, and you can hear a strong uh, low hum, which represents the, the actual waves. Once you had interpreted it, um, how did you create the sounds at that point? I mean, how did you come up with, once you've seen the waves, how do you translate that into uh, something that we can actually identify, let's call it as, as sort of music or, or, or something kind of melodic, actually? Uh, well, this one wasn't easy. Um, no this doubt. took several several weeks. <laughs> some other types of sonification involve more artistic freedom and some involve less. This was a really complex one from the start, involved a lot of data processing to, to really cleanly extract that signal. But it's mainly computer programming. It's um, it's even not too fancy computer programming. It's It's kind of more on the basic side, but it is a bunch of computer programming telling, figuring out how to uh, how to to shift the signal and and make it something that can be experienced. So when you first heard it, uh, when you first, I guess there were some different iterations of what the final product sounded like, but um, when you first heard it, what did you think? <laughs> oh, I, I just thought it was going to be awesome because we've done several sonifications uh, for NASA. They're, sometimes they're, they're data sonifications representing planet orbits, uh, sometimes they're representing discoveries over time, and sometimes they're just representing features in an image. But this was different than all of them because this was a real sound wave in space that we are resynthesizing so that we could hear it. And so uh, when I first heard it, uh, I knew it was going to connect with people because 
right away it, it it sounded to me the way I'd expect a black hole to sound. So really, uh, it sounded like because I had no idea what a black <laughs> hole might sound like, but you had some concept of what it might sound like. Uh, yeah, but but that's just my own intuition, right? I, I could have right. we could we could shift it into higher frequencies, and then it wouldn't sound at all uh, as a low rumble. It would be a higher pitched tone. Um, but I, I started with it in a nice low range because this is the lowest note we've detected in the universe. And so I thought it made sense to, to keep it at the lower range of our hearing range. Well, the lowest note you've detected in the universe, for all the sonification you've done, this one stands out that way as well. Yeah, because this is the first time when it's the thing we're sonifying starts as a actual sound wave. <laughs> Usually there's more artistic steps involved or it's a matter of converting light into sound or gravitational waves into sound. This was the first time we've done an actual sound back into sound transformation. So what have you made of the reactions? Because there have been a lot of reactions to this. A lot <laughs> of it sort of describes something, uh, let's use the term ominous. You know, people sort of see, hear something a bit uh, scary when they hear this. And I was wondering, looking at it again and listening to it again and again, whether that had more to do with what we were looking at than the sounds itself. Because, you know, I think we think of black holes as being something mysterious and maybe a bit uh, threatening. Uh, do you think that played into how people are reacting to the sound at all? Absolutely. When, whenever we do these sonifications, we make visuals and we're trying to make them match in some sense. So maybe us knowing what the image looked like helped influence the sound a bit. But uh, aside from that, it's a very mysterious, weird image. It's a very mysterious, weird sound. And I think it just really sparked curiosity in people. Absolutely. I mean, I've read some incredible, um, you know, this, the sounds you hear in a horror movie when you go into the wrong forest at the wrong time. A billion souls being tortured was another one <laughs> that I read. Yeah. Uh, what have you made of the reactions to them? Is it what you expected? For the most part, it, uh, it, it's more than I expected, for sure. I, I knew people would connect with it, but I didn't think it would be on this scale. It's really gone global and, and viral and in every sense of the word. Um, and people really respond to it. Um, uh, the, the only thing I wasn't prepared for, which I, I should have been a little more prepared for, is is how often it would get misinterpreted or misrepresented. And so part of the reaction is people either thinking that it's a, a literal recording of a sound wave, which is, is not possible in this case, or they think it's completely arbitrary, when the reality is, is somewhere in between and it's much more interesting. Right. So, so there has been, I mean, yeah, the moment you put something out there, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get some wrong takes. I have no doubt. Um, what is this? I mean, when you first heard it, did it, does it sound ominous to you or did you hear something beautiful or, you know, I, I was just wondering what, what your reaction to it when you first heard it, just from a musician, from a musical point of view was. I did start with it in that nice low range. So it did sound even uh, it was actually even lower when I first started. I tried to get away with even lower. So it was a really, really low rumble. Um, and it, yeah, it was definitely dark and ominous. And it, it something fit about it. So I, I heard these kind of groans. And, and uh, from there, I just had to kind of make it a little a little thicker, so that it, at least so you could hear it on every speaker, because <laughs> it was too low for my computer speakers at first. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it's definitely got that that black hole vibe somehow. So indeed. So beyond the the sort of novelty of it, for instance, and I think a lot of people have been really attracted to the curiosity, as you mentioned. What is the purpose or the the usefulness of of knowing what these sounds sound like, so to speak? Well, this is a 
a science outreach project. So one of the main goals is just to, to bring people's attention, bring their ears and eyes to the fact that there's a case where we've actually detected sound waves in space. So that's a win for me if people hear the sound, look a little further and realize it's actually based on an incredible science story that's been evolving over the last 15 years or so. Yeah, what is that science story, just so that uh, listeners understand? So in about 2003, astronomers uh, saw these images taken by the Chandra X-ray telescope, and they were able to, to filter it in a certain way that brought out clear ripples. And so they noticed these ripples, and then over the next few years, the same scientist and his team started proving that these are actual uh, low-frequency pressure waves, i.e. infrasound, propagating in this galaxy cluster. And so uh, demonstrating that was is an amazing achievement, and I wanted more people to know about it. So this is really the culmination of, uh, of a lot of work, sort of the sonification of, of a very long process. What next? Well, we're always on the lookout for other, other uh, instances of musicality in the universe. Um, but a big part of the, the job is making astronomy accessible to people who are blind or visually impaired. And so we have a few more sets of sonifications on the way that will help blind people experience some famous and iconic imagery that NASA has produced. Anything in particular that you can talk about, or is it still uh, still top secret for now? Uh, one is is top secret, and <laughs> uh, the other <laughs> the other is um, so we do have some sets we're working on with the the Chandra team again on sonifying a uh, a famous galaxy, right. I'm not sure how much more I can say. Well, we could we could leave it at that. We'll just we'll stay we'll stay, we'll literally we'll stay tuned. <laughs> there you go, yeah, um, right. Matt Russo. Uh, thank you so much for walking us through that fascinating fascinating stuff. Great, thank you. Uh, well, we're continuing our look into Back to School 2022 this week. Today, we delve into an issue that's been top of mind for parents and teachers for. Well, this will be the third year, I guess, the third return to school that this has been a, a very uh, hot topic. I mean, obviously, classrooms were were shut for a lot of for a lot of it, but just how safe are our classrooms from the threat of COVID nineteen? And there is a push again this year for kids to wear masks in schools since immunization rates for younger children are lagging behind the general populations. Now, mask mandates for schools obviously vary now, but uh, overall, I mean, just about every province, I think every province and territory no longer has a mask mandate uh, for school. BC scrapped theirs back in the spring. Lots of other provinces followed suit about the same time. And as we get ready to go back to school very soon now, uh, it appears, and I don't think every province has officially put out exactly what the rules are going to be, but it looks like just about every single province and territory is saying they're not going to reintroduce, reintroduce any kind of mask mandate. They are, of course, encouraging people um, to use masks. I think PEI and Newfoundland are, are saying it's a very good idea. They're encouraging it to kids to use them if they're not, you know, obviously under certain circumstances to have them available. That's a Quebec thing. Uh, and also just to rely on other measures like hand washing, uh, making sure that kids are monitored regularly by their parents, that they don't go to school if they're sick and so forth. Uh, but it's a very different reality from what it was uh, in the recent past. And that is going to um, meet with concern, obviously, because uh, classrooms are crowded places. I know if you've ever been in one, uh, you know just how crowded they are and how, you know, it, we always see an uptick in other sorts of uh, transmissible illnesses when school starts again. Um so what will it be this year? Are there gaps? Are there concerns? What are parents saying? What are teachers saying heading into this new year? Joining me now with 
More on all of that is Jennifer Heighton. She's an elementary school teacher and co-founder of the Safe Schools Coalition BC. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, I, this must be, as always, uh, a bit of a, I wouldn't call it an anxious time, but school's approaching, right? You, I guess you get the sense that it's coming up. And so how, how different is this year shaping up to be overall, just in terms of your preparation, your feelings about it? This year is different because we are now in our third year heading into it. So it's disappointing that we are still worrying about safety measures in classrooms and governments not doing enough. Tell me about that. I mean, I, I've seen, I was sort of looking at what every single province is doing, and it's, you know, they're, they're all essentially saying the same thing. Mask mandates are done, you know, and they're really put, putting now the onus on parents, teachers, and kids, essentially to monitor their own health. And this is the thing, that this is actually a global pandemic, and, and for safety things as a society, uh, we have rules in place that help keep us all safe. I mean, that's part of living in a society. So, you know, driving down the road, we have rules. We have speed limits, um, car seats in the kid, car, uh, for kids, um, drinking and driving laws. Like, these are things that are not just recommendations. They don't just say, oh, we recommend that you don't drink and drive. No, there's an actual law. And there's a rule for it. And it does help keep the community safe. Same thing should be applying to this. We don't have clean air in schools yet. So that means we need to keep clean air, the air clean, using, you know, universal masking would help with, with that. So we're not breathing it out into the air. Um, and then cleaning the air, uh, getting better HEPA filtration, those kinds of things. That has not been dealt yet with. And it's three years in. This is the big disappointment that we're facing. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, obviously, the question that comes up is that you know, I, I was, um, I went to Vancouver over the weekend. You know, we took took the bus and so on, and you know, masks have kind of disappeared. So, and, and for better or worse, um, and and then the idea that kids would then have to wear masks within schools when they don't have to wear masks anywhere else does raise the question: What's different? And I think you've explained it. Uh, but what are you hearing in terms of just concerns from parents, concerns from other teachers, and why are classrooms different from other? closed in spaces such as offices or buses or so forth? So what makes schools different from um, some other public places is that you're spending several hours together indoors um, and you're close together with, if you, with um, the class sizes that we have. You can only distance the kids maybe one meter apart, but often less than that, especially when you're, you're You've got older kids, like high school students. They end up sitting almost shoulder to shoulder sometimes. So you're in the same room. You're sharing the air. A lot of the buildings are old. I don't think people quite realize how old some of the buildings are, and that's because governments over the last couple of decades have not kept up with infrastructure over time. So some of the ages and conditions of these buildings are ones that a regular company in an office would not put up with. So this is the sort of thing that is not being addressed um, adequately by governments. They ought to be addressing this because this seems to be the new normal. We do have viruses circulating that are not like the flu or cold that do organ damage to lots of other organs. Um, you don't necessarily recover from it the same way 
that you do from a flu or a cold. You know, there's more people getting long COVID, more people in hospital, et cetera, than those other respiratory illnesses. Yeah. I mean, even the other illnesses should have been a bit of a, you know, it should have been a bit of a warning sign back when, you know, that every year when school starts again, all of a sudden we have a spike, uh, maybe not a spike, but at least an increase in the number of, you know, cases of, of colds and flus and so forth. Um, there were promises made, I remember, or at least words said over the past few years, specifically here in BC, I guess we'll stick with BC, um, about improving air quality in schools. How much of that has been done? Not enough. Definitely not enough. And what is sorely lacking from a lot of the provinces is the fact that the federal government gave $100 million to provinces for cleaner air in schools. And they, um, the B.C. government, for example, has not announced how they're going to, to spend their portion of it. So that's $11.9 million is B.C.'s portion. They have not ch- chosen to share how they're going to spend that. Um, We've been having an informal poll, uh, Safe Schools Coalition BC, about HEPA filtration in schools, and 87% of respondents said they had no HEPA filtration in their class, whether that was a parent or a staff member. Um, Some 20% tried to donate, so of that 87% who had no HEPA filtration in their class, 20% 20% tried to donate and were told no, they were not allowed to donate um, a filtration unit to their child's class. Right. And then, yeah. yeah, and then only 13% of respondents actually had HEPA filtration, either from the district or donated that had been allowed. You know, listening to... Um, health ministers are listening to governments, provincial governments from across the country, talk about what the new school year is going to look like. And again, as I mentioned, I don't think we know exactly what what the or marching orders are going to be in every province and territory just yet. But it seems very likely that no no area is going to require kids to wear masks in schools this year. So where does that leave you? I mean, I know you're concerned. I mean, you must be hearing concern from parents too. Where does that leave you? What what do you what is the response to that? So the response is, uh, number one, governments have not explained how universal masking actually works and that it's um, a measure of source control. Um, it also, they also have not shown, you know, they haven't explained to people that in places that had universal masking, um, they had much less student and staff illness. Uh, so Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts just released a study where thousands of missed school days were in the areas that had no mask mandate. Alberta Health, um, Alberta Health had data that they were sitting on that schools with universal masks had three times less outbreaks than schools that didn't. So, so universal masking works. The unfortunate thing is that a lot of the general public is not aware of these studies. And so they are under the impression that, oh, I don't need to mask, you know, it's recommended, which means, oh, the danger must have passed. That's what they've been given the impression. They've also been given the impression that COVID is a respiratory disease and that it's seasonal, which is false on both counts. We know that there's been another wave this summer so definitely not seasonal. A lot of people know of people who got sick over the summer. Uh, Another thing, too, then, is it's not respiratory. Um, Scientists have proven that it's vascular 
and it attacks multiple organs. So, you know, a lot of um, blood clotting, cardiovascular issues. Jennifer Hyten is our guest this half hour, an elementary school teacher and a co-founder of Safe Schools Coalition BC. We're talking about health concerns about the return to school this year. This September will look different uh, from September's past, at least the recent past. Mask mandates have been lifted uh, in all provinces and territories. It doesn't look like any province or territory is going to make students wear masks in class this year. And that's raised some concerns, especially since some of the other measures that could help, such as a filtration or better air quality in classrooms, has not happened yet. Uh, Jennifer, what have you been hearing from, I mean, I know through the Safe Schools Coalition BC, you do talk to parents and other teachers. What are you hearing about the apprehension this year about what the classroom might be like and how it might work when you're trying to, because I was reading through some of the guidelines, like encourage kids to wash their hands, monitor for, you know, for symptoms, have parents monitor for symptoms. It sounds vague, to say the very least. It's definitely not prescriptive enough, uh, and and the fact that masks are optional just makes it tougher in terms of, you know, we are a community and a school. We do care about each other, and in class there are students who are vulnerable or who live with a family member who is vulnerable, and a vulnerability can be something just like asthma, which there are several people who have asthma, um, and COVID can, you know, that, that has a higher risk of a more serious um, illness with that. Or diabetes, same sort of thing. Those are immunocompromising conditions, and there's way, lots of other immunocompromising conditions. Um, all children deserve to be able to go to school. That's a cornerstone of public education in Canada. And when we have a um, system that is not protecting some of those members that are that deserve to go to school, then you know that's excluding them from right. a basic human right. Um, we do make allowances for children who have severe peanut allergies and could right. suffer an anaphylactic shock. So we have um, schools where kids do not bring peanut butter to school, and that's only for a few children. Well, why is it that um, with children with COVID that people are not willing to do these things so that all kids can come to school. Yeah. Um, Were you surprised that the BC Teachers Federation didn't, I mean, they haven't asked for a mask mandate, right? They've said they want to make masks available in classrooms, but they certainly haven't asked that kids all be made to wear masks. And I just feel, honestly, it just feels like that's not going to happen this year, unless there's a new wave. Of course, everyone's qualified this with, if it gets bad again, we'll, we'll revisit this, right? And that's the unfortunate thing, that if it gets bad again, then that's when they will visit it, that they'll wait to see. That's what happened last year when we started the school year with grade 4 to 12 universal masking, but kindergarten to grade 3 did not have that. And then September rolled along. The number of children in the under 10 age group that were uh, showing up in the hospital at that time was a lot higher than a lot of other age groups. And so by October 1st, the BC government decided, oh, okay, we will put masks, um, make masks, you know, uh, mandatory for kindergarten to grade three. But they waited until October to do that. Um, And in the meantime, a whole bunch of young kids ended up in hospital. And the spread, the case numbers of those kids was quite high. 
as Alaska, I mean, a lot of is made about has been made uh, over time about just the, um, the fact that kids don't like to wear masks. What's been your your experience with that? Actually, when a good like school culture of mask wearing is created, kids are actually pretty good with it. Kids, I think, um, a lot of them are responsible. They, when explained to them and they understand how it protects them and it also protects those around them, it helps keep them in class longer in terms of less sickness going around, uh, then they, they accept it and they, they go with it. So, you know, they've been able to be happy and spend time together with their friends. Um, it didn't seem to be a problem in the class. And, in fact... Um, in my classroom, which is which I've had the majority of students masking majority of the time, and they were quite happy doing so, um, they actually had way less illness both years. So normally, in the twenty over twenty years of teaching, I would catch a cold at least uh, two or three times a year, minimum, and have to take days off. Sometimes it would turn into bronchitis. Um, whereas the last two years with universal masking. Um, we, I've not gotten any colds at all. And the Kleenex box, which is usually collection, which is usually depleted by the end of the year, is still like stacks and stacks high. So even the class didn't need to use all those boxes of Kleenex the way they normally did. Well, Jennifer, so um, it does, yeah. it, it's something that I think society needs to figure out what what they need to do in terms of viruses were mostly benign, um, the cold and flu types before, but now we are facing more serious uh-huh. viruses. So cleaning the air, yes, that has to be done. And to be able to do that, then that's the way that we could get rid of the masks. Well, Jennifer Hyden, I wish you the best of luck with the Back to School 2022. I know that uh, it will be, as always, a different experience this year as it has been in the past few years. Uh, And best of luck to your students as well. Thank you so much. Well, you may have come across the term quiet quitting recently. It has become quite the phenomenon. The phenomenon itself doesn't sound all that new, but the term certainly is. Uh, But what is it? Well, there's a video on the site TikTok, which now has nearly three and a half million views. That's kind of responsible for everyone suddenly talking about it using that specific term. And he put it like this. I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting, where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is it's not, and your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. Believe it or not, more than three and a half million views of that one short 17-second TikTok video uh, about quiet quitting. And it's very basic. I mean, we used to call it sort of checking out, <laughs> to, be, to be frank. But, you know, uh, the pandemic has changed a lot of people's attitudes towards exactly what a work-life balance looks like. Uh, so here we have a new term for something that's not a new idea, quiet quitting. And I thought, who better to talk about this with than Alexandra Samuel, who is a contributing writer for the Wall Street Journal, author of Remote Inc., uh, and an expert in all things remote and work and otherwise. And she uh, joins us now. Alexandra, thanks so much. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Ben. 
Did you have any clue what that sound was that I played off the top? Do you know what that is? I, I was thinking it might be the sound of an empty home office when everybody's finally left the house, but I've never heard that sound because there are always other yeah. people around me. So what do it's I a, know? It's a, it's a, yeah, it sounded like the sound of my office when everyone cleared out back in March of 2020. Oh, that was, so tell me, what do you think about this quiet quitting idea? I mean, it, it has a nice ring to it. So I gather right. people have been picking up on sort of the, uh, on the phonetics of it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but tell me about the phenomenon and, and why all of a sudden people are talking about it so much. Absolutely. I mean, it really is. To me, the real story here is, uh, first of all, the power of alliteration. You got to love the double Q. And, and also, frankly, the power of TikTok. Like, this is, as you say, like, you just played the whole enchilada, right? It's not, there's not some deep, uh, massive talk this is embedded in. It's that 17 second clip. And here we all yeah. are, a million newspaper headlines have been launched. Um, so, you know, it's just to me mind blowing that the whole conversation is being driven by what is really, as you say, not a new thought. And and I'm interested in hearing how you characterize it, because I think this really is, you know, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test. Everybody sees in this term their own anxieties and judgments about the way the workplace has changed. So a bunch of people have used, have, have ascribed to it this notion of restoring workplace balance, um, work-life balance, fighting back against, you know, pandemic burnout. Then you've got employers who are, you know, fretting over, well, is this a sign, you know, is this part of the great resignation and the unwillingness of workers to really extend themselves? And then you've got people who are saying, no, no, it's just pushback against hustle culture, but you can still really love your job. And then you've got like Ariana Huffington over on LinkedIn saying, oh, you know, rejecting, um, you know, overwork is like rejecting loving life. And, you know, everybody's got their own version of it. It's a 17 second video with some pictures. Which is remarkable. You're right. The fact is, the term itself is alluring enough that you can read about it into it just about anything you want, right? I mean, it sounds alluring in some way, the idea of sort of putting your feet up a little bit at work and maybe take it easy. But what I read as being sort of the original definition was this idea that, you know, no more overtime uh, unless you pay me for it. Uh, No more taking on extra tasks that aren't in my job description. So, you know, make sure that when what you describe as my duties are correct with some flexibility, but don't expect too much. Um, You know, don't call me after hours. (laughs) Don't email me at night. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't really, you know, I don't really need to spend too much time at the office chatting. In other words, work is not my life, right? <laughs> that's the, uh, well, I guess that, but that's sort of, I, that was kind of my interpretation of it was, you know, just this yeah. idea of trying to set some boundaries around work, which of course, during the pandemic and remote work, those boundaries start to get very blurred, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, that's not my interpretation of it, although I I certainly agree that's how a lot of people have interpreted it. You know, to me, what it really speaks to is how the pandemic has both created and revealed some pretty core um, fractures and crises around our understanding of work. And really at the heart of that is um, the way we measure and assess performance. Um, You know, we are in this conversation about quiet quitting, equating the idea of going over and above um, or the idea of you know just checking the boxes with the number of hours you put in. 
But, you know, if there's one thing we should have learned during this period of time, it's that the number of hours you put in really has very little relationship to what you're actually contributing to the team. And some of the most valuable employees and freelancers are people who just absolutely give it their all and absolutely pour their heart into their work for four hours or five hours and deliver more value in that four or five hours than people who are not just punching the clock, but going beyond and answering that 9 p.m. email. And so to me, what this really speaks to is, you know, the flip side of um, a terrific article in the New York Times last weekend about, about the rise of automated performance management and measuring and our absolute inability to uh, understand output in any way other than keystrokes and hours at the keyboard. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that really came um, into evidence during the early days of remote work was that you suddenly realized that you could get a lot, you could be very efficient at different times of the day, that maybe you did great work between 9 and 12 and 7 and 10, right? 7 and 10 p.m. Um, And maybe you didn't do such good work between noon and 6. And maybe that was a good way of prioritizing. I I guess what was interesting to me about the whole quiet quitting idea uh, was just sort of, you know, it, it had a bit of that take this job and, 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 and shove it kind mm-hmm. of, kind of mm-hmm. air to it. But now we've seen the pushback, right? Because of course, mm-hmm. these days, a TikTok video comes out, millions of people talk about it and watch it. And then <laughs> within 48 hours, the pushback comes like, it's a bad mm-hmm. idea. It's a bad idea. So on the flip side of this, what is the downside of quiet quitting? Well, I think it's, it's, any, any framework uh, for talking about how we reorganize our work that's framed as quiet quitting is a, is a lose-lose. It's a lose for employees because it's a signal of kind of hostility and disengagement. If you think of um, doing your job as it's written as quiet quitting, you're probably not too happy at work. And it's a bad sign for employers because if employees are feeling like that, it's it's not a great fit, it's not a great vibe, and, and the rest of the team may feel a little abandoned. So to me, the story here is, you know, what's gone wrong in the way that we have managed this transition to hybrid work, that we have people who are feeling that level of disengagement, and that we have managers who feel like if you aren't working more than nine to five, you aren't doing your job somehow. Um, it really reveals dysfunctions on both sides of the equation. Yeah, I mean, I imagine for managers, especially these days with employees, not in all sectors, but a lot of employees, a lot of you know vacancies to fill and people mm-hmm. to make happy uh, and, and things to worry about when it comes to your employees' mental health, their physical health, and so forth. I mean, managing these days is difficult. And if you're, um, if you're left between, what often happens is if, if you end up with a lot of quiet quitting go- going on, you know who does the work? The manager, right? That's, that's how it, it, that's what happens, unfortunately. Perhaps. I mean, I think part of part of what I would say is going on is that people are realizing that there is a lot of waste, frankly, in the context of of a day, particularly, frankly, as a lot of organizations are managing it over Zoom. I mean, you know, I had a meeting not too long ago where a manager was telling me that every time she rolls out a policy, a new you know policy document to her team, she books a Zoom meeting and reads it to them because it's the only way she can trust that they'll actually absorb the new policy. And like, that's a crazy use of everybody's time. And so I think yeah. in some sense, what we're seeing here with, with this idea of quiet quitting is 
okay, if you're going to measure me by the numbers and by how many hours of the day I'm sitting at my keyboard, then all I'm giving you is me sitting at that keyboard. I'm not doing the go for a walk, think deeply about my work, come back with a bolt of inspiration. You didn't buy my inspiration. You bought my hands on the keyboard. Alexandra Samuel is with us this half hour. She's a contributing writer for the Wall Street Journal, author of Remote Inc., and an expert on remote work, amongst other things. We've been talking about the phenomenon of quiet quitting, something you may have read about uh, quite suddenly. It is everywhere, uh, quite uh, quite suddenly. After a TikTok video, it's so such a 2020, 20, 2022 story. After a TikTok video last week released, got millions of views and it spawned lots of headlines about it. And we're just talking about the ups and downs of it. Um, Part of this, Alexander, must be to the anxiety of sort of as we head towards Labor Day and people are thinking about, you know, the office and fall and all those things. You think that, you know, quiet quitting has sort of fell right into that sweet spot in the summer where people are starting to think about, you know, what September is going to look like. Well, I mean, part of it also is that the pace of the return to the office is, you know, I think in Canada, we may be a little bit out of step with what's happened in the US and, and in the UK. And it's been really interesting going to the US again and, and seeing um, you know, what it's like in offices there. It's true that people aren't necessarily back in the office full time, but um, I, I definitely have felt much more of a return to the old world of work on the other side of the border. And so you know, I think part of what we see with this pushback is just like, you know, you have everybody herded back to the office and then you have another wave of COVID and folks are asking themselves, you know, like, really, I'm risking this for, um, you know, a minimum wage job or, or you know, conversely, as I say, like, I do, I think the missed story of the week was this, you know, incredible, deeply reported piece from the New York Times on the, in, the really growing prevalence of worker monitoring and the number of companies who are now um, monitoring not just you know um, own um, customer service reps or you know yeah. warehouse workers, but white collar you know consultants, people you know professionals who thought that the whole virtue of their advanced degree meant that they would have professional autonomy, and who are being told in jobs like palliative care and psychotherapy that they're being measured by time at the keyboard and you know yeah. that I think speaks to the conditions that are leading people to push back on on the experience of work yeah I'd, I'd read somewhere at one point that they that you know there was use of AI to to read people's yeah. sort of messages to each other to find out whether they were you know good influences within the company or maybe they were prone to quitting like sort of you know really really sort of big brother kind of stuff yeah. and and no wonder no wonder workers are starting to feel a little you know like wanting to hit the brakes a bit and say wait a second you know you're gonna have to check with us on some of this stuff you know we don't just because you pay me doesn't mean you own me right i mean i think that's where the the quiet quitting thing yeah. comes in it's sort of well, that pushback you know? but but also i mean part of what's interesting is that um there there have been in in some instances a very explicit trade of uh, surveillance for freedom from the return to the office. Oh, you don't want to come back to the office full time, then you have to agree that we are able to monitor your online activity five days a week. And, yep. you know, that is a pretty, you know, and, and this really comes down to the fact that organizations are still 
set up for bricks and mortar management. They have not transitioned to a model of management that's appropriate to a remote or hybrid workforce. We're used to monitoring. We're used to looking over people's shoulders, making snap judgments about who's being productive because of what they're wearing and how they're sitting and how they talk to us. And in the absence of that, you know, eyes on hands-on management, companies are falling back on other strategies of kind of worker surveillance and control that are very uncomfortable for people who frankly have reevaluated the balance between work and personal, you know, in the context of the pandemic. I guess we're still just figuring this all out, aren't we? We sure are. And, you know, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I think that's actually the most important thing for every organization, every manager, and, and also every employee to think about, which is, you know, <laughs> yes, it feels like this has been going on a while now, but if you think about the fact that um, the workplace of 2019 really was the product of about 150 years of, of you know, continuous innovation in, you know, from the dawn of the industrial revolution, all the way up till COVID, we really were building, developing, and tinkering with this model of on-site work. And it's only been, you know, two and a half years of something else. We're not going to get it all figured out by December. We're just not. It's going to take three, four, ten years, and then some, for us to to start to arrive at a model of hybrid work that has some of the benefits we really appreciated about the in-person office but also um, that reconciles with the reality and the lessons and the benefits we've tapped into over these past couple of years of, of more work from home. Alexandra Samuel, as always, thank you so much. Germany's chancellor has come and gone, winding up his first official visit to this country. Olaf Scholz, though, has left behind some glaring questions about Canada's ability or inability to help his country and Europe in general to rid itself of an overdependence on Russian energy, specifically oil and gas. There was a big announcement in Newfoundland about fast-tracking the production of green hydrogen to Europe, but that won't be heating homes in Hamburg anytime soon. In fact, what Germany really needs is natural gas, liquefied natural gas to be exact, and Schultz made that very clear in a speech to a business forum in Toronto on Tuesday. As Germany is moving away from Russian energy at warp speed, Canada is our partner of choice. For now, this means increasing our LNG imports. We hope that Canadian LNG will play a major role in this. But the task at hand is much bigger than simply diversifying our energy supply. Play a major role in this, LNG, the Chancellor said. And while Canada could provide some relief if Russia continues to weaponize energy exports this winter, the Chancellor's visit exposed a cold, hard truth. We can't and we won't. There's lots of blame to go around. We really haven't been in the business of building pipelines or LNG facilities in this country, a notable exception being the Coastal Gas Link pipeline out here in BC, which will eventually help export liquefied natural gas once it's liquefied uh, to Asia. Right now, there isn't a single LNG export terminal in this country. Every single liter of natural gas that Canada manages to export all goes to the US via pipeline, and they perhaps can 
turn it into, you know, liquefy it and send it abroad. But as many of this country's allies look to cut down on the reliance on Russia across a wide spectrum of natural resources, Canada seems to be the logical alternative. But we're not really able to step up despite an abundance of resources of our own. And the spotlight falls on the current government and accusations that a regulatory environment uh, that critics say throws up way too many roadblocks to resource development is standing in the way every step of the way. On Monday, the Prime Minister said there's never been a strong business case for LNG gas exports from Canada's East Coast to Europe. Well, joining me with more on this is Heather Exner-Pierrot. She's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, a research and communication advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network, and a global fellow at the Wilson Centre in Washington. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. So the, the Chancellor's visit really did expose, I mean, I, I, going into it, there was talk about, you know, we're going to discuss liquefied natural gas, and that was sort of put on the back burner. And sure enough, Chancellor Schultz hold, uh, showed up, and that's what he talked about. Uh, it kind of highlighted the gap that exists, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, hydrogen, I've got no quarrel with hydrogen, and I think in 15 or 20 or, or 30 years, I might be able to play a useful role. But certainly, you know, in, in the coming years, it's, it's LNG and the prospects for LNG are very good. And as we try to get off Russian gas, um, there's no better alternative than good old Canadian uh, LNG. And we have the Montney Formation uh, straddling uh, BC and Alberta, which is probably, if, if not the best, one of the, the best uh, gas uh, formations and reserves uh, left in the world. And yet it uh, looks like it's, for the most part at least, I know obviously the coastal gas link pipeline is being built slowly, but it's being built. Uh, but for the most part, it's, you know, a lot of it's going to be left there, isn't it? While Europe uh, potentially this winter at least uh, finds itself uh, cold and in the dark to a certain extent. So, you know, we, we export, we're the fourth largest producer and we export uh, almost all of it. Um, but most, it all goes to the United States, the ones that we do export. And that used to work really well for Canada before the shale revolution, before the United States got all of its own natural gas from, from fracking. Um, and so now we have all this excess gas in Canada. What do we want to do with it? And, of course, uh, other countries in the last seven, eight years have been developing their LNG export capacity. We have not been able to do that. Now the world's in a crisis. Um, some people think it's too late. I don't think the chancellor was here because he thinks it's too late asking for LNG. I think they're thinking about the short term, the medium term, and the long term. Uh, and Canada needs to be a part of all of that. Yeah, of course, we know that the U.S., as far as LNG is concerned, is operating at full tilt now. They have no more capacity, really, do they? So in other words, um, there is that opportunity for Canada to at least maybe alleviate some of the world pressure on LNG by shipping uh, to Asia, but that's also a ways off. So again, there's a question. Do you think it's too late uh, for Canada to get involved at this point? It certainly doesn't seem like the government is is pushing, the federal government is pushing too hard to make this happen. So, so obviously doing this five or seven years ago would have been much better, but we didn't. So what do we do today? In the short term, what we can do is uh, increase our exports to the United States, and they're building LNG exports like gangbusters and getting full capacity there. Uh, we can definitely uh, add gas you know, uh, to, the, to the markets in two or three years here uh, out of BC, and that will help reduce some of the global demand. But there is, you know, people say it's too late to help Europe this winter. But what about helping Europe in four and five and six years? What is the plan for that? And it's still got to be LNG. Uh, not to mention, you know, the Asian population is going to grow by a billion people uh, in the coming decade. Uh, they're going to be moving from, you know, kind of poverty to middle class and using more energy. So there is no, 
there is no realistic scenario just that that doesn't see us using more LNG in the coming decades, especially to get us off coal. And here's what people need to understand is because we don't have enough natural gas in the world right now, we are we are using the most coal ever in history. It'll be a record year for burning coal in 2022. And yet, you know, when um, the BC case was being put forward, obviously you'll be well aware of the counter arguments to it that, you know, the, the market for LNG was was tanking and that it wasn't worth building these facilities. Uh, and then we have this war in Ukraine and, and this sudden reliance, this sudden awakening, I think we already knew it, but an awakening to just how reliant so much of Europe was on Russia for natural gas. And suddenly the business case looks a lot better. So is there an opportunity opportunity here, do you think, to revisit those business cases for some of those projects that were mothballed back when in the last 10 years, say? I mean, some so some of them, when we say they're mothballed, some of them are still ready to go, um, but mm-hmm. still need the approvals and need the investment. And this is kind of the critical point here. Who is going to spend billions of dollars on a new LNG pipeline, a natural gas pipeline or LNG export facility in Canada when we have the Impact Assessment Act, when we have the potential emissions cap, uh, you know, that wants to cut by 42 percent, when we have the clean fuel standard? It is who wants to put their own money not knowing what is going to be the investment climate, if it's going to get approved at some point, it will be clawed back. So there are, you know, we have that we have the natural gas. In fact, we don't even just have BC and Alberta natural gas. There's plenty of natural gas in Quebec uh, and in Newfoundland, in particular, a little bit in New Brunswick. Um, and at today's prices, it's trading natural gas is trading in Europe right now at the equivalent of five hundred and thirty dollars a barrel. Um, and we had the cheapest gas in Canada because we can't get it out. So, so the business case couldn't be clear. On top of that, we need to get off coal. And so, you know, people will pay a premium to get off coal if they, you know, if you apply carbon taxes, that kind of thing. The business case is so clear. The investment case for putting your money into natural gas in Canada is the thing that's outstanding here. Yeah, and, and it certainly it will take uh, a regulatory environment that would encourage that kind of investment. And I guess when uh, when a lot of big companies look at what the regulatory environment is, uh, as you mentioned, they're reluctant to drop big money on something, not sure how long it's going to take to build it, not sure what kind of uh, roadblocks will be in the way when they get going. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there was an East Coast LNG plant in Quebec, beautiful, beautiful gas reserves that they have there, uh, I think 10 miles from open water. Uh, and that was rejected in February. So, you know, on, on because of its greenhouse gas, gas emissions and because of the unacceptable uh, impacts on marine mammals, there won't be an LNG or a hydrogen export facility that doesn't have an impact on marine mammals. Um, but who is who is going to be the next person to say, oh, I'll try an East Coast LNG plant after that was just rejected only months ago? Heather Exner, Heather Exner Pirro is with us this half hour. She's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, a research and communication advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network, and a global fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington. We're talking about the German Chancellor's visit and uh, the quest, uh, certainly the optimism or the hope in Europe uh, that Canada can be part of the solution to an energy crisis, a looming energy crisis uh, in that on the continent as they try to uh, rid themselves of a long dependence or at least a, a very acute dependence of late on Russian energy. Uh, we've been talking about why it makes sense for Canada to provide some of that much-needed natural gas or liquefied natural gas uh, to Europe. Uh, Heather, you just wrote a really interesting op-ed for the National Post. When you talked about this more broadly, it wasn't just about 
LNG. It was about a lot of different things. It was about Canada sort of hoarding its resources. And, and at a time when, as you mentioned, Russia and Canada share very similar resource wealth. And as parts of the world are looking to try to rid themselves of that dependence on Russia, Canada seems to be the natural place to turn to. And it doesn't look like they're finding what they're hoping to find here just yet. How is that? Well, we have been underinvesting in, in our resources, uh, you know, be it mining or oil and gas, forestry for the, at least the last decade. And some of this is a, is a global problem and some of it is definitely a Canadian problem, that it takes longer and it's more expensive to get things done here. And so capital just finds it easier to get the return on investment elsewhere. Now, of course, we have the second biggest land mass and a small population. So we are one of the very few places. Uh, and, and certainly the most obvious one that has more resources than they need, where we're a net exporter of just about everything, uh, you know, would be it food, energy, or minerals. And so, you know, allies have already been linked to us for the critical minerals um, that we need for the green transition, for the oil, for the gas, thinking ahead, wanting to get off uh, Russian dependence for a while. Uh, but, of course, it hasn't been forthcoming. What's interesting is that just about everything Russia has that is now in, in, in a critical shortage, and that Ukraine and also Belarus had, uh, Belarus is also under sanctions, and of course Ukraine's having a hard time exporting, happens to be things that Western Canada is rich in. So that's wheat, uranium, potash, oil, and gas. Now, of course, everyone knows the pipeline issues we've had for the last while. At $100 a barrel, oil producers are very incentivized to use railways, uh, you know, to ship their, their rail bikes, their crude by rail. That takes up room from what we might be able to boost our potash uh, exports right. to. And that will take, in, in turn, of the wheat and the grain and the oilseed exports that we can do. Uh, and I think we all know after COVID and supply chain snarls that we just don't have any excess capacity in this country. So essentially, a lot of these, uh, our ability, it's not that we don't have it, our ability to get it to it to market, essentially, has been hampered to such an extent that we can't up, there, there is no ex room to expand, even though the world is looking to us and saying, we could use some of that. No, exactly, that we have underinvested in infrastructure, have not made a great uh, investment climate to do those kinds of things, um, even though the geology uh, is very favorable to us. Uh, but but the business case for the investment it has been going elsewhere where people get a return uh, in, in shorter shorter time. So unfortunately, we're not in a position right now. Uh, it'll take some years to ramp up if we can get approvals for you know for the things that we need to do that ramping up. So if one were to hand you a magic wand, Heather, I know this is an improbable question. What would you fix first? I mean, where would you turn to? What are some of the short-term solutions? Uh, because, I mean, you know, the, the federal government, this federal government did buy a pipeline. It's not like they're completely oblivious to the fact that these resources are available and there's a demand for them. Uh, but if you had to change one thing, what would you change to make this situation uh to allow our resources to get to market, because clearly there's a demand for them and we have them. I know sometimes we we try to move away from that old reputation as being simply, you know, a, a, you know, hewers of what you know, hewers of wood and carriers of water. But at the end of the day, we have this stuff and people need it. So it's the timeline. It's the timeline when you when you first submit, you know, to do a project, a major project in Canada, to when you get approval. And this isn't, this isn't a conservative talking point. This is the Minister of Natural Resources who has said this, like, you know, I think in the last two weeks and, and many times before that, that you know, the average time to get a mine up and running in Canada right now is 12 years. And how are we going to have a green transition where depending on, 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 on critical minerals, obviously, to do the batteries and, and the panels and, and the, you know, all the things, the magnets, 
how are we going to have that transition if it takes us 12 years to develop the mines to develop those resources? So, so that is, and, and, and what kind of investor would put their money into Canada knowing that they won't start even to start getting any money back for 12 years? So that is the battle that we're, we're faced again and, and need to reduce the permitting timelines, the rationality of the processes, you know, jurisdictional chaos uh, between the feds and the provinces, the territories, um, and, and because I think we, we, want, we thought that, you know, resources were a 20th century thing, no one has paid attention to that. No one thought that that was important. We wanted to move to the knowledge economy anyways. And now I think we're all being reminded that um, underlying the software is the hardware and that we need hard materials. We need mining. We need uh, lumber. We need oil. We need gas for just about everything we do in this society. Uh, and the rest of the world needs it badly. And one of the issues here, too, is that even, you know, investment money just looks for other places to go where the regulatory environment and the investment environment is a bit friendlier, right? That's the way money flows, right? If, if, if it's not here, it goes elsewhere. It's not like the money is being kept aside waiting for Canada to get its act together. No, and, and there, there isn't, it's politically, we are politically risky right now. Um, yep. and, and I'll point, you know, look at Northern Gateway or Keystone XL. Companies can put hundreds of millions of dollars into a project in Canada and lose all of it and get nothing, you know, for what they put in. Look at TMX, where the costs are triple uh, what they're estimated to be. Um, but, you know, so, so it will take years to undo the damage, I think, to our credibility in the investment arena. Uh, and we need strong signals for the federal government that they will change their tune, that they want to make major projects work, that they want to work with investors and resource development sector. But we have not heard that. And, and you know, the LNG, you know, simply not talking about LNG and saying that there's not a business case. This is the opposite of what people need to hear. And that's exactly what the Prime Minister was saying, wasn't he, the other day, that there was no business case for LNG on the East Coast. I mean, I know that's been talked about over the, over, over time, just the, you know, the uh, trying to get it to, to pour, trying to liquefy it there. But uh, as you mentioned, I mean, it, the demand is out there now. Um, and and if, uh, you know, if there are investors willing to step forward, you're right, if the government says there's no business case, if I'm an investor, I'm not going to throw my money into that. No, and I, like, I, like I said, they literally rejected... Uh, a project uh, less than six months ago. So there was someone willing to put their money in, went through the approvals, went, you know, went through the initial stages and got rejected. Um, so, but that person obviously thought that there was a business case uh, when, they, when they first went through the effort. And there's been a few other situations like that. So there is private you know, industry that, that can see that you could sell the LNG uh, for a profit, obviously. The prices you know, have never been higher. Uh, but it's it's the risk that you just won't get that money back at all, that your project will never see the light of day. Heather Exner-Piro, thank you so much for your time tonight. Fascinating conversation. Thanks so much.